miss you. So this is coming from Revelation 19, 11 through 2015. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the, on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In, in number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is in the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm also one of the pastors here. And as you can tell, we are in the book of Revelation. And as Heather mentioned, we are like right at the end of it. So depending on how you're feeling about the book of Revelation, that's really good news. Or maybe sad. I don't know. Maybe you really liked it. You like all the spooky images. I've talked about this before, but just as a refresher, there is a concept in psychology referred to as the rule of complementarity. Now, it is not the the same concept that pops up in theological circles. It's something very different. And generally, what the rule of complementarity means is that we respond to one another in like manner to the way we are treated. So, for example, if I am nice to you, most likely you will respond to me complimentary, in kind. You will be nice like I am nice. If I wave to you, there's a good chance that you wave back to me. But on the same hand, if I am rude to you, there is a good chance that that sparks in you a complimentary rude response. That if I say something off, it will jar you into a rude response to me. That we tend to match one another. We tend to mirror one another. Our actions, our response, our engagement with one another tends to be complimentary. It tends to be in kind. That's why it's a rule. But we can, when we want to, break the rule of complementarity and do something that is a non-complementarian action. So if you're nice to me, I can respond by being rude. It's not what we expect in the response. And so a rude gesture to something that is very nice feels particularly jarring. Like if I give you a gift and your response to me is rude or abrasive or aggressive, it feels more jarring than if it was like measured in kind. Like if I had been rude and you had been rude in return. A non-complementary action feels startling. If I'm rude to you and you are nice to me, that's a non-complementary gesture that feels startling. Because in both instances, whether I am nice to you and you are rude to me, or I am rude to you and you are nice to me, in both of those instances, there is something unexpected about the response. You've probably experienced this in your real life if you're like fighting with your significant other. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the fight, the significant other kind of realizes what's going on and they calm down, they lower the pressure, and they apologize to you. And if you've been like ramped and somebody's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, it like steals whatever fire you had within you because you're responded to in this way that is like, what? It's almost upsetting when someone responds to you nicely and you're mad. Like, what do you do? No, hit me because I want to fight you. Right? There's something so startling about that kind of response. Or maybe you've come home expecting to like, have a pleasant experience. Like you came home with presents or flowers and what you're met with is like someone's anxiety or someone's frustration. Like that also can be a startling encounter because you have an expectation of what that moment is going to be like. Sometimes complementarian or non-complementary gestures can just be bold in a moment. We, this last week we were celebrating my birthday and some of ours were at lunch. 
We're eating lunch, having a really lovely time. It's like a light, fun event. And an old woman walks by our table. She says, have fun, kids. That's it. That's all she says. And then the waitress comes out to us and is like, hey, that woman just paid for your meal. And you're like, just having, that's exactly right. You're having this like lovely moment and then someone responds to you in a way that is unexpected. And it feels like a gift and it shifts like this pressure of a space. All of a sudden, something that was fun and light and exciting now feels almost like, like there's something else happening in that moment when someone gives you such an unexpected gift. There's something startling almost, something jarring when someone responds to us in an unexpected way, when it does not seem to meet the, meet the moment or fit the conversation, when someone gives and we have been taking, there is something unexpected. And unexpected gifts, unexpected responses are beautiful and they are good, but they can also be really startling and deeply disarming. As we mentioned, we are in a series in the book of Revelation coming right to the end of the book. And I think in many ways, the book of Revelation is an expose of God's unexpected responses to his people. We read all throughout the book about evil. We read about systems of injustice. We read about sin. We read about this thing called Babylon, which is like the endless uh, continuously appearing power structure. We read about the beasts. We read about the dragon. And our expected understanding of how God is going to confront those moments is always subverted. We think one moment's going to look like judgment, and then it turns out to look like something else. We think one moment is going to look like fire from heaven, and then it actually is a gift. All throughout the book of Revelation, we think God is going to act a certain way. I think in some ways you could say we are almost trained to believe that God is going to act a certain way, deal with evil a certain way, but then repeatedly God does not respond that way. And that is especially true as we move into chapters 19 and 20. This section that we're in that Amanda read for us sometimes is referred to as the Battle of Armageddon. She probably brings up like a bunch of spooky images. It tells the story of that final cosmic conflict against the forces of good and the forces of evil. And in so many ways, it's kind of a moment that we have been hoping for. Because all throughout Revelation, you've been getting this sense of what are the enemies of God? What is causing problems in the world? What is pushing against God's good work of justice and righteousness? And so finally in this chapter, all of those forces are sort of arrayed against one another. And God is going to do something about those forces of evil. And I think when we hear that, we talk about Armageddon, we bring to that moment, like we have throughout all of Revelation, a lot of expectations about how is God going to respond to these forces of evil. And the text, I think, plays on some of those expectations. It sets up scenes that feel almost familiar, scenes of warring nations or battlefields and judgment. But like so often throughout the book of Revelation, as soon as we think we know how a moment is going to go, it does not go that way. So today, we're going to look at three such scenes from this text. Three moments that I think are unexpected responses 
where we believe we know what's about to happen, and then something flips the script. And we're going to call these three images these three things here. The first image we're going to see is a war without a battle. Then a funeral that was actually a wedding, and finally a grave that could not hold the dead. So image number one, a war without a battle. This first image comes in Revelations 19, verse 11 through 16, the first chunk of this text. And it has all of the images that we expect of a great cosmic conflict. It says the heavens open, and out of it comes Jesus riding on a white horse. His eyes are like a blazing fire. He's covered in blood. He's wielding a sword. He's followed by the armies of heaven who are all riding on white horses. It feels cinematic. It's like that moment in Avengers Endgame where everybody comes out of the weird magic circles. (laughs) Did you not remember that they all fossied out into the world? And then against the armies of God are the forces of evil that have gathered to do this final battle. And so when you see the scene and you watch the text, it feels like, oh, this is the cosmic conflict, the Armageddon that we have been waiting for. But then as you keep paying attention, something is actually really weird about what's happening in this moment. Something is off from a traditional conflict scene. Some of these images, well, they're strange. Like, why does Jesus show up to a conflict already covered in blood? That's weird. No war has happened yet. Why is he already covered in blood? Or why is the weapon that Jesus carries coming from his mouth? That's strange. Why doesn't the army that stands behind Jesus have any weapons? Oh, that's interesting too. In fact, why doesn't the army do anything in this text? You have them come out of the magic circles, and yet they do nothing. And maybe most importantly, and most glaringly absent from this text, there's no scene of a battle. Fascinating. The armies are arrayed. The conflict seems to be about to unleash. Everyone is there, and then no battle takes place. Old Testament or New Testament scholar Michael Gorman says this, at this battle, no fighting occurs. We learn the fate of the enemies of God, but this is more of a summary or a report of casualties than it is anything else. Hmm. Something unexpected is happening in this image. And if you've been with us throughout Revelation, this image mirrors another moment that comes in Revelation chapter 5. John, the revelator, who is seeing the visions, who's writing this book, he has a vision, and in it, an angel asks the world, kind of like this rhetorical question, who is going to rescue the world? Who is going to enact God's plan? Who is going to save everything? And John and all the people who are gathered together, they begin to look around, like, who is worthy to save the world? Who's going to rescue us? Who is the hero that we've been longing for? And as John looks around, he begins to weep because he can't see anyone until someone points and says this, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll, God's plan, and its seven seals. So John is waiting for this hero. Someone in that book says, look, here's the lion. That's a kingly image, a ferocious image, a heroic image. And so then it says that John looks towards this direction, and what does he see? 
I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. John thinks that he's going to see a lion. He thinks that he's going to see a general clothed in armor. He thinks that he's going to see a warrior king. And what, in fact, does he see? A lamb already bloodied. This is the same thing that's happening in Revelations 19. We expect to see a warrior and a battle. And instead, the unexpected happens. We see Jesus already bloodied. And the war already won. In this moment in Revelations 19, Jesus is doing what Jesus always does. We gather for a battle and Jesus offers his body. Jesus in this moment meets his enemies with the enemy embracing sacrificial death of the cross. We expected to see a sword and instead we are greeted with a cross. Now that leads to the second unexpected image coming out of this moment where Jesus presents himself as already bloodied, the next thing that John sees in this vision is something that's kind of grotesque. In verse 17, it says this, And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all peoples. I think especially after what I just said, that Jesus is already bloody, this image feels so jarring and visceral, like a field of bodies that becomes the feast of birds. But it is actually especially jarring because just a few verses earlier, another meal is had. In, verse, in chapter 19, verse 7 through 9, we learn about the wedding feast of the Lamb that happens in the wreckage of Babylon. It says this, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's interesting that these two images come so close to one another. Babylon has just been destroyed, and it says that there's this wedding feast that begins to take place. And all of a sudden, as you're like in the wedding imagery, that's verses before this, like you'd be seeing the wedding. All of a sudden, it's like if you were in a movie and it began to transform into something gorish and grotesque. What do you do with those two strange images? This image of like feasting on dead bodies and also this beautiful image of a wedding feast. How do those moments go together? I think about it like this. These visions feel almost like two intentional images that are layered on top of each other, like a Salvador Dali painting. I don't know if you've, you probably have seen this image where there is two things happening. Both images are real. Both images are true. But depending on your perspective, you see and experience something different. Maybe you see two elderly faces staring at one another, or you see two musicians singing together. Your perspective shifts how you encounter this image. And I think likewise in Revelations 19, two images are there. But like this painting, our experience or our perspective shapes what we see. The Apostle Paul says something actually very similar in 2 Corinthians 3.16. He says this, for we are to 
God a pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, we are an aroma that brings life. The same experience smells different. Well, the Apostle Peter says something very, very similar using, again, different imagery in 1 Peter 2, verse 7. He says, Now to you who believe the stone, it's an image of Jesus, you believe it's precious. But to those who do not believe, that same stone is the one the builders rejected, and it has now become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. It's the same thing in each Moment, one stone is precious and beautiful and used to build a life on a cornerstone of a building, but for others, that same stone, that same image, that same experience is a stumbling stone, something we fall on and reject. The wedding and the funeral are the same. The thing that is beautiful is also the thing that feels most like a bane. Jesus confronts the world with himself, his love, and with his truth. The sword that he wields from his mouth is an image for truth. Paul calls the sword of truth. And that is beautiful news to be confronted by truth and love, but it is also startling and disarming. There is nothing better or more disorienting than truth in Love, because it upends all of our pretenses and illusions. My favorite theologian, Stanley Hauerwas, says it this way, truth scares the hell out of us. It makes us face death. And that is a hard learning. But only in the person of Christ are we encountered by the one who can unmask our illusions without utterly destroying us. In this text, Jesus on the white horse is the one that is named faithful and true. And so Jesus confronts the world with what? Faithfulness and truth. And the tricky thing about that is we have to decide what to do with it. Throughout Revelations, I've repeatedly told the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son through Luke 15. It's my favorite parable in the whole Bible. It's probably my favorite story in the Bible And it's just a recap. In the story, there's this good father who has two sons, and the younger son comes to the father, demands his inheritance, and then leaves the father and goes and spends it however he wants to. But then one day, the younger son wakes up and is like, oh, the world that I've purchased for myself is not kind. And so experiencing kind of the judgment of his own decisions, the younger son is like, I should return to my father, which he does And it's a beautiful moment. The father welcomes him and receives him and they sacrifice a lamb and throw a huge party and begin to celebrate. But there is another brother in that parable. Sometimes gets forgotten. It's the older brother. And in the story, the younger brother returns, they begin to throw a party and the older brother is in the fields. And he hears from a distance that there is a party happening begins to go towards the house and refuses to enter, which I think is so fascinating. What an interesting thing for Jesus to say. He refuses to enter the party. So instead, he sends a servant to investigate. And when the servant learns that they're celebrating the return of the younger brother, the older brother is enraged by it. That's what the text says. 
So the father leaves the house, leaves the party, and goes to the older brother and entreats him to come back into the party. And the moment that follows is beautiful and also deeply tragic. The older brother looks at the father and says this, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? It's like, how dare you? So the father said, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus ends the story there with the older brother still in the field, a big question mark left on the table. The older brother sees the party, this feast of reconciliation, this wedding party but is enraged by it. It does not strike him as a story of hope or beauty or of love, but instead of his own lack. It reveals something about him that he is unwilling to sit with, so he will not enter the party. He stays in the fields outside and apart from what the Father or God is doing. Jesus confronts the world with love and truth, and that can mean a reconciliation party, a wedding feast. But we can also look at the thing that Jesus is doing and, like the older brother, be revulsed by it. You would invite these people to that party? You would make space for this community? You would demand that I am honest about this part of me? You would require that of me? We can be revulsed and angered by the Father's party and refuse to enter it. We can stay in the fields, and like the father in the prodigal son story, he'll never demand that we stay. He'll never coerce us to stay. We can demand our inheritance and spend it wherever we want to, and we can stay in the fields. But it will feel like hell to stay in the fields, because it is. In chapter 19, the image is more intense than the story of the prodigal son. It's not a field that the father chases his son into. But instead, it's this image of a lake of fire. And a lot of things come to our mind when we hear about the lake of fire. But it comes from an earlier moment in this text, earlier in chapter 19, when Babylon, the city, is destroyed. And as this empire of darkness, this counterfeit kingdom to the thing that God is doing is destroyed, it is set on fire, and turns into an ash heap. Earlier in chapter 19, it talks about the smoke that rises from Babylon. Like the fields, we can choose to stay in Babylon. It's a city that will always destroy itself. That's what we've learned over and over again throughout Revelation. Babylon will always devour itself. It will set fire to its own very existence. But we can choose to stay in the world that we have made, the city that we have burned. We can choose to stay in places of pain or shame 
for judgment. And in so many ways, it is less frightening to stay in Babylon or to stay out in the fields. I think we as humans have become very good at finding identity in the worst of places. And to stay in Babylon allows us to hold that sense of identity. To maintain that sense of self, to maintain that superiority, that self-righteousness, whatever it is. So we can be like the older brother, revolved in the fields. We can choose to live there and hold to the lies that we so cherish. But it will feel like hell. Because that's what the Bible says hell is. Us choosing to hold on to the lies that we believe the most. The ones that reduce us, the ones that burn us, the ones that hurt. There's a final image that comes in this story that is unexpected and surprising. The final image comes at the end of chapter 20. We've been kind of jumping around these different pieces. And the beast and the dragon have been defeated. And Jesus sits on the throne and he calls out to the dead. And it's kind of a like Halloween-y image. All of a sudden the graves open and the dead begin to come from the ground and from the ocean and they march towards the throne. And it says they are judged. And that strikes us with fear, I think, for a lot of us. But what's happening in this moment is a good news image, I believe. Because we have to remember that Jesus judges the same way that he battles, the same way that he died. As the lamb who was slain. He confronts us with truth and love, an invitation to enter the party or stay in the fields. So Jesus confronts the world with truth and love, and then the text says this, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. They were tossed into the remains of Babylon. This is an image that the final enemy, the weapon of evil that we have been most afraid of, is undone and cast away. Until not even grave can hold the dead. All throughout this text, Jesus is meeting the people and us with unexpected responses. I feel like each time I think I know what Jesus is going to do in this moment, he does something that is so different that I'm like trained or uh, preconditioned to believe that he is going to do. I show up thinking there's going to be a war, but there isn't even a battle. I'm looking for a funeral, and it's transformed into a wedding. At every moment, something unexpected happens throughout the book of Revelation and in this text. And this is good news for all of us as we read the book, as we think about our own life. But it is not just good news about what is to come. It is also news that shapes the existence of our life here. Right in the middle of this passage of 19 and 20, there's this moment where we talk about a thousand-year period of time. And I believe that thousand years is a symbolic number. John's been using symbol and symbolic numbers throughout the book of Revelation. I don't know why he would get so literal in this moment. And in this thousand years, it shows Jesus reigning and the dead reigning with him. And it is a picture, I think, of our time here and now. 
the world in which we live right in this moment. In this image, Jesus is reigning and the kingdom is arriving. Sometimes the theological phrase for this, it is already, but not yet. It's kind of emerging on the corners, creeping in from the margins. It's fermenting or percolating, but it is not yet fully arrived. And as we see this image and we see the dead reigning with Jesus, what it is meant to evoke in us is that we, the people of Jesus, one, get to live in the confidence of the victory, but we also get to participate in the coming kingdom. How do we do that? Well, Revelation 14, earlier in this passage, says that those who would rule with Christ follow the Lamb wherever the Lamb goes. What do we see the Lamb do? Meet the world with unexpected truth and love. And so we likewise are invited to meet the world with truth and love. To live an unexpected life that unmasks our own and the world's illusions and pretenses. We are invited to show the party to everyone who lives in the field. In Psalm 23, the psalmist says, that God lays a table before his enemies. And all throughout the Bible, table becomes the image for God's unexpected response. In this story, it's the wedding feast. Jesus loved to go to the table, and so did the psalmist in the Old Testament. And it's such a strange and startling image that there's like an army arrayed before you, and the thing that you would do is like have some crumpets. But that is exactly what we are invited to do. That strange and unsettling and disarming thing. To lay a table before our enemies and the world around us. To participate in the meal that God has laid for us and then to lay a table for those around us and to look at the world and say, come and eat. The party is good. We can all come in from the fields. Let's pray. Jesus, today, would you meet us with that unexpected gift of truth and love? The gift that reveals who we truly are, what we truly are, the world in which we live. God, would you meet us with unexpected grace that we could see the table that you lay before us and know that the party you throw, the wedding feast of the Lamb, oh, it is really good. And we all invited to come. Would you just say, help us to join your party. In your name we pray.